The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. We are coming to the conclusion of our series on 1st John. John, the beloved one, John, the pastor, here in his latter years, writing these truths to the church, coming from a place of reflection under the, under the illumination and of the inspiration of the Spirit, to write to the things that are most important, to listen, and to say, friends, he calls us children, dear ones, I want you to know these things. I want you to hear these things, and not just to hear them, but I want you to know them. Eight times in this passage of chapter 5, uh, the word to know is used. He's saying, I want you to know these things. I want you to be assured uh, of these truths, that you, that you not only have a cognitive knowledge of them, but they have moved into a deep-seated knowledge and experience of them. And verse 13 uh, is a clear way that he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Saying the most important thing that you need to know about is eternal life. Whether or not you have it. Either you have it or you don't have it. There's no sort of in-between stage of I'm kind of saved, I'm sort of saved. He says you are either one with eternal life or one who doesn't have it. And then he moves and continues in this section uh, to talk about being born again, about the new birth. He reintroduces this new birth, as it were, going back to his gospel in chapter 3 of Jesus on the rooftop with Nicodemus and saying to Nicodemus, you must be born again in order to inherit the kingdom of heaven. And Nicodemus didn't understand what in the world he was talking about. And John now comes back to it. And he said, you have to be born again. You have to have this new birth. And it's sad within our culture uh, that we have created or allowed to be uh, created within the church this demarcation between Christians and born-again Christians. I mean, there's Christians, and we all want to be a part of that. We don't mind being called Christian. We don't want to be those radical born-again people. Those are the crazy ones. Those are the radical ones. Those are the ones who we just can't figure out. And I want as a part of this study, and in general in our studies together and in our life together, to recapture and to reframe words and phrases that have been lost within our culture. For instance, Evangelical is a word that I don't use too often anymore because evangelical uh, has been uh, ruined, as it were, within the political arena uh, because now in America to be evangelical is to be alt-right Republican. That's what evangelical means to many within the culture today. Others have taken the word and so prostituted it uh, that it no longer means what it is supposed to mean. I was listening not too many months ago and one of the commentators on one of the main uh, news channels uh, spoke of an evangelical Muslim cleric in Afghanistan. Oh, an evangelical cleric for Islam. 
So I wanted to call the man and say, so is he proselytizing in the name of Jesus? The true gospel, the good news, the evangel, the good news that he's bringing to bear. And of course the answer would have been no. And so that word has been totally lost uh, today in our culture. And so has born again. But John would say this. If you are a Christian, you are born again. If you are one who has inherited eternal life, it is because you have experienced the new birth. And so what we need to do is rid ourselves of the dichotomy that says, well, there are those who are Christians and nominal within the church and those who were really born again. John would go, I have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus and Nicodemus would go, I have no idea what you're talking about. And so today we're going to look briefly in this uh, primer, as it were, on John chapter 5. We're not going to be able uh, to deal with some of the other things that are brought up, sins that lead to death, sins that don't lead to death, uh, the testimony of the water and the blood and the spirit and all of the nuances of those things. I hope that you will uh, study them. Uh, But for the purpose of this sermon, we are focusing on the new birth. And we're focusing first on the need for the new birth, the need for the new birth, the means of the new birth, how is it that we are born again, and then the marks of the new birth. So the need for the new birth, the means of the new birth, and then the marks of the new birth. And so first, the need for the new birth. Why do we need to be born again Verses uh, later on in this passage, verses 18, 19, and 20, uh, highlight three different groups of people. Uh, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects, but he who has, who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come, given us understanding, so that we may know him uh, who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. The first group of people that are mentioned in verse 18 uh, are said to be people who are born of God. Verse 19 speaks of a group of people uh, who are called the children uh, of God. And verse 20 speaks of people who are people who have or possess eternal life from God. What we recognize is these are not three different groups of people, but descriptions of the same group uh, of people. Uh, This is an implication that is given to us in here that if you are a child of God at all, or if you have eternal life at all, it means that you have been born again. Because those who are children of God and have eternal life are born again. It's not describing a type of Christian, it's describing Christians. And what we find in this need for the new birth is that everyone needs to be reborn. Everyone needs to experience this new birth. It doesn't matter who you are. As I was studying and preparing, I found it interesting that one uh, writer and commentator uh, went back to John's Gospel of John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. And he said, isn't it interesting, in John chapter 3, we're introduced to the character of Nicodemus. The Nicodemus uh, was uh, a leader within the religious establishment. He was educated. He was most likely wealthy. Uh, he was one who was well put together and well buttoned up. You would look at him and go, there's Nicodemus. What a fine man. He was a good southern 
man in the sense that he attended church. He would have tipped his hat. He would have said, yes, ma'am. He would have opened the door. He would have tithed. He wouldn't have cussed most likely. He wouldn't have chewed. He wouldn't have spit. He wouldn't have done all of those things. He was a good man. He was a religious man, a wonderful man. And Jesus looked at him and said, you have to be born again. And then in juxtaposition over in chapter 4, you run from Nicodemus who was all put together and morally straight and morally right and religiously right and politically right and all of these good things. And we bump into a different character in chapter 4. And she's the woman at the well. She was a Samaritan woman. She was part of a group of people who the Jews considered half-breeds. They were mixed in their race and so they were racial and social outcasts. And she was an outcast of the outcast. She was bad enough that she was a Samaritan woman, but even the Samaritan women didn't hang out with this woman. That she had to go get water on her own because she was morally deficient. That she was no longer with her husband and the man that she was with wasn't her husband. And Jesus calls her out. And so you have this interesting Chapter 3, chapter 4 of John putting it together. And in some sense, we can extrapolate from that and out from that this. It doesn't matter if you're the well-buttoned-up, wonderful, godly-ish, moral person who comes to church all the time, who's politically set, is socially set, is morally set, or you're the worst of the worst over here, uh, living an immoral life. Uh, All of the things that come with that, it doesn't matter. Both of you need to be born again. What an affront to the Nicodemuses of the church. What do you mean I need to be born again? I might need to get fixed a little bit, tweaked, but born again? Starting over? From, from the very base of who I am? My very nature and character have to be changed? John would have said yes. Now, the Samaritan woman was offended in her own right. What do you mean I need to be born again? What do you mean that I need to have you? He said, you worship on a mountain, but you need to worship me in spirit and in truth. You've got it all wrong. You need to be born again as well. And so the point in this, I think I've hammered home enough, is that each of us must be born again. So if you're investigating Christianity today, if you're tipping your toe back into church and wondering what kind of church this is, some of you have shut down right now. Oh, no. It's one of those churches. Born again, peopleish church, and the answer is it has to be. We, we we have to be, but I hope what you will hear if you will remain engaged is this: this born againness is the basis for all Christianity, and no one who isn't born again can in- inherit eternal life. And so, my simple question to you, coming out uh, of this first point, is this: Do you see your need for being born again? And if you see your need, Have you acted upon it? Have you acted upon it? There's a great story, and I don't have time to do it, but D.L. Moody, the wonderful pastor and preacher in Chicago, said in his latter life that one of his greatest regrets was preaching a sermon one Sunday evening. And in that sermon, coming to that place of saying, have you acted upon this truth that you have to either decide for Christ or against Christ to be born again or not to be born again. And in his moment, he feared man and he didn't put that out before the people. And during that week, the great Chicago fire happened. And lives were lost. And Moody said, 
This is the most important thing. And you need to make sure that today, you know where you stand. And are confident in where you stand with these truths. So the first thing, you need to be born again. All of us need the new birth. Second, how is it that we're born again? What are the means by which we are born again? Nicodemus didn't understand it. Jesus said, you must be born again. He goes, can I crawl back in my mother's womb? It was like, this is weird. What do you mean being born again? How How does that happen? John would say this in verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He's saying this, faith, belief, is the means of eternal life, of the new birth. The word believe, pistis, uh, in the Greek is mentioned seven times in this chapter alone. And you may go, so what? It's only mentioned ten times in the entire letter. Seven times right here in this chapter. And what he's saying is this, faith matters. There is an essential quality to your faith. Now we're going to unpack this uh, in a later message when we begin a new series next week uh, on the solas, on the onlys uh, of the Protestant Reformation. Sola Scriptura. Sola gratia, sola fide, uh, sola Christo, sola Deo gloria. Uh, looking at those truths. And so the sola fide, faith alone, we're going to unpack more. But to touch on it, it's important for us to understand our faith. Faith matters. That we're people of faith. That we have faith in things. So you may go, uh, but I'm not a person of faith. As you do evangelism, if we were to go over to England and go uh, into Sunderland and some of the other neighborhoods and we would present Christ to them, many people would simply respond as they would on our own island. Well, I'm not a person of faith. Well, the answer is yes, you are. Every single one of you is a person of faith. It just depends what is your object of faith is the most important thing. But you are a person of faith. And so, for instance, today, you're sitting in a chair. You've, you've had a faith moment as you came in. That chair is going to be sturdy. That chair is not going to be nasty or it's going to be pseudo nasty, but okay for you to sit in and you can be there. And so there's faith that we exert in that. And it's the same way here, that faith is the means of the new birth. And in this, we're going to have a couple of sub points. So if you're an outline person, second big point, the means for the new birth, sub points, object of our faith, faith is the means, the object of that faith the source of that faith, and then ultimately the effects of that faith. So the object of that faith, that's what matters most. Christian faith believes in Jesus, in the Jesus of 1 John. It's incredibly important to understand and to know the object of your faith. Do you know Christ well? Are you a student of Him? Have you read about Him? Do you understand the nuances? Do you understand how the Christ of the New Testament is the Christ of the Old Testament? How the beauty of salvation and of the covenants and all of the movings and all of those presentations of when He says something in the New Testament and you go, why did everybody get so upset about Him? He just said the Son of Man. And you would go, oh, but I've studied Him. And I know that when He says Son of Man that He's talking about in Daniel, the Son of Man, and that He is that fulfillment, and that He is this Christ. I know Him. I've studied Him. You see, Christian faith believes in the Jesus of 1 John. 
Christian faith believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Christ of chapter 5, verse 1. Christian faith believes that Jesus is the divine Son. Verse 5 of chapter 5. He is the Son of God. Christian faith believes, uh, verse 6, that He is the One who came into the world. Uh, You have an understanding of His incarnation, uh, that He took on flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, that He would dwelt here. So what was it about His humanity? What was it about His divinity that came together beautifully uh, in this person without confusion or corruption? Uh, And it brought together, because I'll tell you, The American church is only about 50 years behind the English church. That as they vacated the belief in Christ. Because see, there was first a vacation of the belief in this being God's word. And then when this no longer stands to be God's word, everything goes. Then Christ becomes a construct. And when they lost that, the church was lost. Folks, Christ and his word are under attack in America today. And you need to know what you believe. Not so you can argue it, but so you can live it. And if need be, stand for it verbally and otherwise. And so you need to know these things. You need to know Christ, that He was the one who came, and He was the one who died, verses 6 and 8, when it alludes back to the blood. You need to know Him. Christian faith begins with the object of our faith. Namely, this apostolic Christ. Therefore, friends... What you believe about Christ matters. Eternally. And we wonder, as it were, why our young people trained in our churches, in our children's ministries, in our student ministries, they go off to college and their faith is wrecked. Because we're sending them up against PhD level secular humanists And they've got a felt Jesus in a felt boat floating across a felt Sea of Galilee. And they go, what do you mean this may not be archaeologically correct and there's no way that the divine can become human? And I guess I don't believe these things to be true. Because you know more than I do. And I think part of the reason that our young people are getting decimated out there is because not only is the church not training them properly, our church included, that we need to continue to strengthen that. But in our homes, parents aren't properly trained. You don't know Christ well enough to tell Him to your child. Because this is who He is. This is the object of your faith. This is what it's about. Folks, that's why we say as a very large part of our church, renewal of the mind, of teaching, of wanting you to grow, of wanting you to learn these things, to know this Christ in all of His beauty, in all of His nuances, because the object of your faith matters. What's the source of this faith? We can see that the object of faith uh, is Christ. What's the source of faith? How is it that we gain this faith? Many believe that our faith is internally generated. That we are the true source of our uh, faith. That it comes from us. That we, we conjure it up. We, we get it somehow. And sorry, there are some who just don't have faith. And then there's those of us who have faith. And we're really sad for the ones who don't have faith. But we feel really good about ourselves. At some level, it becomes the greatest of all works. I have faith. 
Too bad you don't. I'm saved on the basis of my faith that I internally generated. All you have to do is read 1 John chapter 5, verse 1, and it destroys that argument that faith is internally generated. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So just as the birth of a child comes before the child's first grin and the words and the steps that the child has, so birth, rebirth, has to come before the believer has faith. Faith is generated out of the birth, not before the birth. And that comes because I know that you, in your study of the Scriptures in Greek, love to understand verb tenses. I can see the excitement in you right now. Awesome, Bill's going to talk verb tenses again. Because it says here, actually, the one believing, the one believing, that is the one who is in the present tense, which indicates that present continuing activity, that you are believing now and will continue to believe going forward. That person has been born present tense. It indicates, or excuse me, uh, perfect tense, it indicates a past event that was done. That if you are believing now, it means that you were once born. First. In the past. Your heart had to be rebirthed. Your heart of stone, your dead heart, Ephesians 2. This heart that could never and would never choose or be moved towards God. God had to change the heart first to Nicodemus. I have to change your heart. I have to rebirth your heart. And then when your heart is rebirthed, it will then choose me. It will have faith in me. R.C. Sproul said it so well. We still choose God. God just had to choose, change the chooser so that we would choose Him. So you can ask me the question, Bill, don't I have to choose God? Yes, you do. But God first has to do a work in you. Because you never would before. Ever. Isn't that awesome? And you know what it does for us? It makes us the most humble and the most confident people in all the world. That we worship different and better than anyone else in the world. Because we recognize this. I never would have chosen Him. Unless he first gave me a new heart. That probably honestly I didn't want at the time. But he gave me this heart. And I'm so humbled by that. And I'm so hopeful. That if it's not up to the individual. That means anybody can be saved. I have a great and a profound hope. That everyone whom I preach the gospel to. Has and can come to faith. Because it's dependent upon God not on me. And that's why we go into places that are dead. If you think England doesn't worship something, you haven't been there on a Saturday or a Sunday, go to Arsenal, go to Man U, go to Man City, go to Sunderland and Crystal Palace. They worship a little ball that goes around a field. And their identity is captivated by it. That's who they are. Here people go, well, who are you? I'm a Baptist, I'm Catholic, I'm Presbyterian. There, it's, oh, I'm a Man City, I'm a Man U, I'm a Gunner, I'm a this. They worship something. And our hope is this, a place that's void of the Gospel doesn't have to be void forever. Because my heart was void. And God, rich in mercy, changed my heart. And so we worship. When you sing those songs, 
You sing and you go, I glory in my Redeemer whose precious blood has purchased me. It changes it for you because of His work on your behalf. All from verse 1. And two little verbs that were there. So the source is and always will be God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It, that is faith, is a gift of God. Or in Acts, the woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening to Paul. She was, she was a churched person. And she was listening to Paul. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things that were spoken of by Paul. You see the components and the elements there? Somebody had to preach the word Paul. She was listening and God opened her heart and she believed. There is a work that happens in beautiful concert together. So then the final piece that we would come to today, the last mark. What are the marks of the new birth? How do we know that we've been born again? I don't have a lot of time to explain all of this, but I I do want you to see uh, in verses 18, 19, and 20 in particular uh, how incredibly comprehensive they are. It says that we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protects him, uh, and the evil one does not touch him. And we know that we are from God. The whole world lies under the power of the evil one. We know that uh, that the Son of God has come and given us understanding so that we may know him who is the true who is true and we are in him who is true in his son Jesus Christ he is the true god and eternal life there's an interesting fullness to those statements of here are the marks or the effects of the new birth in your life there's a change in your mind there's a change in how you perceive things verse 20 there's a change in your heart And there is a change in your behavior. So there is that change in your mind that you experience a new spiritual awareness. Uh, He says there in verse 20 uh, that he gives us understanding so that we may know him. So he gives me knowledge that I may have knowledge of him. No, he says, uh, it gives you understanding that you may experience him. That word is yada from the Hebrew. It is as a husband experiences intimacy with his wife. Uh, It is the difference between me telling you about an incredible meal and me taking you there to eat it. You can know that that meal is really good, that it's the best chef on the island, uh, and that what he or she makes is the very best. And I can tell you all about it, and you're going to go, oh, I know that. They're the best chef. They've studied in the best culinary schools. I know these things. But to take you there and go, eat, you now know it. You experience it. It becomes real to you. For some of you, you still have never experienced Christ. You know Him cognitively. Stoically, knowledgely, not a real word, with knowledge, but you haven't experienced Him. You haven't taken a bite, taste, and see that the Lord is good. How do you know honey is sweet unless you've tasted it? Or that water is cool and good for your soul unless you drink it deeply? That's what, that's what John's saying here. That a mark of the new birth is this change in really who you are, your understanding. It also is a change in your identity. 
that it says that in verse 19, that we are from God and the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. What it's really saying is this, is you're no longer under the power of the world and the evil one. It doesn't say that all the world is evil. It says it's under the power of the evil one. But you, who are now rebirthed, a new believer, a new Christian, a new creation, you are under the control of something else. That you are no longer under the control of. Interesting, I think that's why he put verse 21 in there. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's saying don't be under the control of anything else. Because when you are born again, no longer does your identity, no longer do your good looks, no longer does your job, no longer does your reputation, no longer do your children, no longer do those things have an evil influence over you. Idols aren't evil things. Many times idols are good things that have been moved into ultimate places. That you have to have them in order to live and be happy and contented. And John would say, no, no, no. Your identity's changed. You are now one with God. And then the final thing is this, and you've heard this enough, I think, that your behavior changes. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. And this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. And we, uh, and we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. You see, our behavior changes. I say this over and over again. Because over and over again in the American church, it said just the opposite. The way that it's said within the church is your behavior doesn't really matter as long as you have Jesus. My statement would be this. If, you're, if you have Jesus, your behavior must be changed. It has to be. We love one another differently. We love Him differently. We want to obey Him. We wrestle with sin. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It just means we wrestle with it. That it becomes more of the outlier than of the constant in a sense. And so all of these things change within us for the ultimate conclusion that you can have confidence that you are a child of God. Folks, my encouragement to you today is this. Don't leave this place without being confident of that. I'm not trying to be dark, but I want to tell you there is no promise of tomorrow for any of us. Don't leave today without being confident of this. Let's pray.